Yeah, this week I, I threw Seb under the bus because we, we usually, on Tuesday at our staff meeting, uh, go through the passage and talk about possible songs or how the leadership might go. And I said to him this week, I don't know. <laughs> when I know, I'll let you know. And then I didn't get back to him. So, But he did a good job. I've really enjoyed the, the book of Haggai. I'm grateful for this little book. A little sad to be finishing, but let's read together the final passage. That's Haggai chapter 2 from verses 20 to 23. Haggai 2, 20 to 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, we are are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way that it changes and shapes and builds your church. We're grateful that you are a God who has revealed himself, has spoken to us, can be known and loved, and worshipped. So we pray this morning, one last time in this little book, that you would cause that worship in our hearts as we see Christ. Amen. In Greek mythology, there's a a human king named Sisyphus. I have to read it uh, so I don't say syphilis accidentally. Every time. Sisyphus managed to cheat death twice and lived a, a, long, and a long time and, and died at a ripe old age. Uh, but for cheating death, Sisyphus was punished by Zeus and he had to spend all eternity in Hades rolling this giant stone up a hill, a hill that he could never get to the top of. And he would roll it and get close and close and Eventually that stone would become too heavy and it would roll back down to the bottom and so he'd walk to the bottom of the hill and begin again. Uh, this was Sisyphus's punishment for trying to live forever. It was a deterrent to other men. But isn't that a description sometimes of how life can feel? Some of our labors seem endless. Some of the targets we're trying to reach seem unattainable and some of the payoff for our work seems non-existent. It's certainly the, the matter when it comes to the curse of laundry, is it not? Doesn't matter how much laundry you do, you're never done. And if you have children, you know. If you think you're, you're done at the end of the day, one child each, eight, eight outfits each later, and you, you're right back at the beginning. Uh, Sheree was talking about this, reflecting quite morbidly the other day, saying, I've been doing this for years, and I'm going to be doing this until I die, aren't I? That's how it is with paying bills, 
cutting your grass. I've been fighting with my, my pool recently. Maybe that's how you feel uh, with the work you do day in and day out. You're rolling this big stone up a hill, but it just keeps rolling back down to the bottom and tomorrow you're just gonna start again and do the same thing over and over and over again. And more seriously, sometimes we feel like this in our Christian walk, don't we? In our everyday calling, that we're doing nothing more than just rolling up this, this boulder up a hill, up a hill that we can never summit. Uh, we can't quite get a, a handle on life. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by um, your smallness in a big world. Maybe you're trying to follow Christ and walk in holiness, battle against sin, but you feel like you're you're losing the battle. Maybe you're trying to grow, but you just can't get a handle on your prayer life and on your quiet time. You're trying to parent. Maybe you're trying to love and lead your children well, but you feel like things are just out of control all the time. Maybe it's your marriage that feels out of control. Maybe you're trying to be faithful and fruitful in ministry, trying to lead the church, but you feel like your, your efforts are always coming up short. When your attempts to follow Christ and be fruitful in the world feel as if they're, they're insignificant, the problems are too big, things are too dark, when it feels like the currents pushing against everything that your hand finds to do are too strong, the book of Haggai is for you, and that's why I've really enjoyed this book. After being swept up into the currents of world events, after spending decades in, in exile, the small group of Jews come back to the land and they're tasked with rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And we saw, didn't we, how their zeal was quenched by opposition, how their hands drooped and discouragement led to apathy. And so we looked at Haggai's message of rebuke, but also of encouragement and how he came and tried to solidify in their, their hearts again a devotion to the Lord, a desire for his honor and for his glory among the nations. Take up tools and, and they repented and they took up tools again. Well, he has one more message. The same day that he gave the message to the rest of the people, his final word to them to encourage them, Haggai has been speaking to Zerubbabel all along. Every message he gives is to the leaders and to the people. But today he has one more message for Zerubbabel alone. One word to this man tasked with leading this people in the rebuilding work. And Zerubbabel must have, must have felt overwhelmed at times with the weight of responsibility on his shoulders, um, with the, a sense of his smallness and weakness. He was a, a little fish in a big pond. He was... He was Nemo with a broken fin, um, struggling against currents too powerful for him, threatening to wash him away. His name means most likely seed of Babylon, seed of Babylon. So he was the grandson of the last real king of Judah. His grandfather was Jehoiakim. And under Jehoiakim, destruction came and the people went into exile and Zerubbabel was born in captivity. He's the seed of Babylon. He's born in the royal line of David, but of a, a decimated people. He's a, a king without a throne. He's just the, the, the governor of Judah. His was a borrowed authority, a limited power. What hope is there for this man? His name was a constant reminder of their subjugation to a stronger people. 
What hope is there for this fledgling people? But Zerubbabel's story is about more than the strength and the power of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's story is about the strength of God and what God is doing. And so Haggai has one more word before he disappears from the pages of Scripture. It's a word to Zerubbabel that is also a word to us. It's an invitation to you and to me today. Can you take your eyes off uh, of the great problems that you're facing for a minute? Can you take your eyes off of your weakness and your struggle and how you are, are falling short? And can you put your eyes on God again today, on His promise, on what He said that He will do? Haggai leaves Zerubbabel, I believe, with two promises that are meaningful for us, and they're backed by a message of sovereignty that says what God has promised to do, God will do. When God says He's going to do something, He keeps His promises. Five times in these final verses, we see God saying, I'm about to, or I will. And so the promises we're going to look at and serve as an encouragement for us today are these. God's kingdom, firstly, will not be shaken. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. And God's people will not be forsaken. In verses 21 and 22, let's see. God's kingdom will not be shaken. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. So the Old Testament promises a day of judgment, a day when every throne that, is, that stands in opposition to the will of God will fall. And Haggai is coming with that same message, the message of the day, and he's coming to Zerubbabel, saying, be comforted, Zerubbabel. You feel perhaps like a, a puppet king, a puppet ruler who can achieve nothing, but the strength of the greatest nations and the greatest rulers is as nothing before me. And I will overthrow, and I will reign and notice how he comes to Zerubbabel. He doesn't come with a, a specific plan, an action plan or battle plan. He doesn't come like a master tactician saying to Zerubbabel, yes, we're in a, we're in a jam, but this is what we're going to do. The language in this promise actually is kind of generic. It's familiar. It would have brought up what had happened in their past. But that's exactly the point. God's assurance for the future lies in what is true about Israel's past. That's what he's doing here. So Haggai uses traditional vocabulary for God's miraculous intervention in their history. Chariots and riders being overthrown. What does that recall? Recalls the Exodus, right? When Pharaoh's chasing them out or, or, or trying to pursue them after he let them go, they're cornered when they come to the Red Sea. And God says, stretch out your staff, Moses. And Moses says to the people, God will fight for you. You need only be silent. And the Red Sea is parted and they pass through on dry ground. And God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I will harden the heart of the Egyptians and they will pursue you. And today I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. 
Horses and riders shall go down, Haggai says. That language is specific. That's the exact phrase Moses used in his song of praise to describe how the waters covered the armies of Pharaoh. Everyone shall die by the sword of his brother. Here Haggai is jumping to Judges 7 again, to the time of Gideon, where the Lord saved Israel from the hand of the Midianites, and they did not even, the Israelites didn't even have to swing a sword. The fact that Zerubbabel and Judah are insignificant in the greater scheme of world events makes no difference when it is God who acts. That's the point of the message. The same God who shook the earth in the past to rescue and redeem Israel is the same God at work today, Zerubbabel. It's the same God. It's the same God who's sovereign over tomorrow. See, God is freeing Zerubbabel from this burdensome notion that his future and the future of the people and their good is somehow dependent upon his ability and his strength, that that would be the determining factor in accomplishing what God has for them. Maybe you live with a similar notion that you're the the captain of your own destiny or you live with the notion that, that your good and your future is up to your strength and your power and your might And God is saying, I am the sovereign God and my plans and my purposes will come to pass. And so your your task, Christian, is simple. You're not building your own kingdom. It's not dependent on your strength. I'm building something glorious. Your task is to trust me, to rest in my promises, just be a faithful little worker in my kingdom. Can you do that? In verse 21, this is the second time that he's spoken about shaking the heavens of the earth in this small book of Haggai. You remember how he spoke about it in in chapter 2, verse 6 as well? The promise, I will shake the heavens and the earth. And there the context was, you know, we don't have the resources. We can't build the temple. We're not strong enough. We don't have the gold and the silver and, and the skilled workers. We don't have what we need. And God says, I'm, I'm sovereign. I could take the nations by their, by their legs and hold them upside down and shake until all the gold and silver comes in because it's all mine to begin with. And the treasures of the nations shall come in. And that promise was taken up by John in Revelation 21 when when, when the promise is given that God will dwell with his people and the glory of the nations shall come in. The treasures of the nations will come into his holy city. This is what happens when God shakes a people. A few weeks back, I mentioned the sacrifices of those missionaries who gave their lives in the China Inland Mission. For years and years and years, they'd struggle to see any fruit, but the church was still small in China. It was a fledgling little group. And then persecution came with the the Boxer Rebellion at the turn of the 20th century. And they gave their lives, crying out, saying, God, do something in China. God, save these people. Imagine giving your life for a task that seems so hopeless, so beyond your reach. But oh, what God did with the seed of their shed blood. Today there are more Christians in China than there are people in South Africa. 
Because when God decides to shake a people, there's no throne that can stand in opposition. There's no power greater than his gospel. In our passage, he speaks again of shaking the heavens and the earth. And the emphasis is a little bit different. This shaking results in every human opposition to the throne of God being destroyed and thrown down, every other kingdom being shaken. Did you know that Haggai is quoted directly only one time in the New Testament? Do you know where that is? Yes, in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author is wanting to help this people who are reeling under a growing persecution who don't think that they can persevere in the faith, are tempted to go back to the synagogue, go back to their Jewish faith. There's growing temptation to compromise. Their defense against sin is thin. So like John does for for his readers in the book of Revelation, the author of Hebrews wants to lift their eyes to something higher. And so he references um, Exodus 19, Mount Sinai, and he says to them, you have come to Mount Sion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And then he quotes Haggai saying, everything that's made, everything that's physical, heavens and the earth, all will be shaken and only one thing will remain. So he says in verses 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. Every earthly kingdom has an expiry date. There is a day when every throne will melt away and only one will remain. Isaiah 40, 15 says the nations are as a drop of water in the bucket. They're like a speck of dust on the scales. Every ruler, every human dictator is just a vapor in the timeline of human history that God holds in the span of his hand. Pharaoh. Nebuchadnezzar, where are they? Cyrus, Darius, Alexander, Caesar, the President of the United States, every ruler, every empire, just a blip on the radar. Before Franklin D. Roosevelt was President of the United States, he was Secretary of the the Navy, and he visited the then famous American historian Henry Adams, who lived in Washington, D.C., to share some of his woes, his his troubles, the responsibilities on his shoulders. And and Henry Adams said to him, I, I believe to encourage him, to put things into a little bit of perspective. He said, young man, I've lived in this house many years and seen the occupants of that white house across the square come and go. And nothing that you minor officials or the occupants of that house can do will affect the history of the world for long. There will be a day when every kingdom, physical, social, intellectual, where every ideology, every system that is set in opposition to Christ will melt away, will disintegrate. Kings will shut their mouths in awe when they see Jesus. Every knee will bow when they see the risen king and his kingdom alone will remain. He will reign forever. And so giving your life to his kingdom, being enveloped by his kingdom, being lost in his kingdom, in submission to his throne and his rule. It's the safest place that you could possibly be in the universe. And so to Zerubbabel, 
the comfort is this. You are, you are a weak people. You are a ruler with limited power. But take heart, Zerubbabel. What you are doing today is not about your kingdom, it's about my kingdom. And what you're doing today, I will use in my cosmic plan for all time and all things. They were just building the house of the Lord. God was building his glorious future. There is rest for the people of God who understand the sovereignty of God. We are laboring with tiny hammers, but God is building a glorious future. And we need to learn the lesson that Zerubbabel is being taught this day, that we, we don't look to the future in light of the present and in light of present circumstances. We look at the present in the light of the future and what we know to be sure and true in the light of God's promises, not in the light of the opposition that we face. I've shared before that Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms. It was written by uh, Asaph, who was the temple worship leader of Israel at the time. And he confesses how he had almost stumbled in the psalm when he was looking around at the world around him. And it just seems that the wicked prosper in everything that they do. And as somebody who wants to follow the Lord, the God, it always seems like their backs are against the wall. And he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. But then he goes into the temple, into the sanctuary, in the presence of the Lord, and says he discerns their end. That's the wicked. He discerns their end. He says they're like a dream that slips away in the morning. You know that dream that you know you had, but you can't quite remember. The promise of the day of the Lord is also a warning, is it not? Jesus is coming. Judgment is coming. And if you are not for him, you're against him. Every kingdom, every ideology that's opposed to the truth of the gospel, no matter how strong it seems, how clever it appears, is nothing more than a house of cards that is waiting to be shaken. God, Asaph goes into God's presence and his perspective is reordered and so he comes out saying in the middle of his problems, I, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail but God is the, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when it seems like what we're doing and our, our efforts are, aren't achieving much, this truth is never not true. Today, God is still my portion. He is enough today. And so we labor with joy, knowing that we receive and are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Number two, God's people will not be forsaken. Look at verse 23, the last verse of the book. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's kingdom has been established. There's peace in the land. There are no enemies knocking down the door. And he's in his, temp uh, in his palace and he's, 
He's grateful for what the Lord has done for him. And his heart of worship leads him to say, you know what, it's, it's not right for me to be living in my house of cedar while, while God lives in that, that drafty old tent, speaking of the tabernacle. And so he, he commits in his heart that he wants to build a temple to the Lord, which was a good desire to have. But God comes to him with a message through the prophet Nathan, essentially saying, thanks, David, but I don't need you to build me a house. I don't need you to build me a house. And the language in that passage is similar to the language in our passage. The focus shifts from what David wants to do to what God has been doing and what God will do and is doing. He says to David, I took you from the pasture. I made you prince over Israel. And I have been with you. I have cut off your enemies. I will make a great name for you. I will protect Israel. I will bring rest. And when you're dead and gone, I will establish the throne of your son forever. And a promise is made to David. Thanks, David, but I don't need you to build me a house. I'm building you a house. The tabernacle in your midst is not about my comfort. It's about my grace to you, a sinful people. And it's about your desire for my presence. And the book of Haggai in this passage sort of recaptures this sequence, the same sequence of 2 Samuel 7. Zerubbabel is the descendant of David, primarily responsible for the rebuilding work. And here at the end, essentially, he's told, he's asked this question, who actually is building a house for whom? This passage is about what God is doing. And so ultimately, the, the encouragement to Zerubbabel and the encouragement to you and me is this. Your security is not in your usefulness to God. Your security is in His sovereign election. In the words, I have chosen you. And see how the language changes from verses 21 and 22 to verse 23. To the nations, to the enemies, He says, I will shake I will overthrow, I will destroy, but Zerubbabel, I will take you, I will make you. I have chosen you. You are mine, you're like my precious signet ring. This is the language of election that we see God speak to a people languishing in slavery in Egypt when he, when he frees them and says, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. It's the language of election in Joshua 24 verse 3. I took your father Abraham. It's the language of election in 2 Samuel 7 we've just read. David, I took you from the pasture. This is God's word of comfort to a small people and to their king without a throne, caught up in affairs that were too big for them. God says, when all the world is shaken, you are not shaken. I have taken you to myself. You are not forsaken, but you are safe in my hands. And with these words... I believe God is meeting Zerubbabel with pinpoint accuracy where his heart needs to be met. This is speaking into a, a shame that must have existed there, an insecurity that probably existed there. This is not the first time we're seeing words spoken of a, a signet ring. In Jeremiah 22, Jeremiah the prophet is prophesying against the last real king of Judah, Jehoiakim. And he says to him, 
this wicked king, though you were the signet on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life. King after king after king, wicked before the Lord, turning away from God and eventually God says, enough. And off into exile they go. A signet ring was worn by our kings, sometimes on the finger, sometimes on a chain close to the heart. It was a precious possession. It was essentially that king's signature. If he wrote a message and that message was sealed with hot wax and the signet ring was pressed into that wax with the emblem of the, emblem of the king, that message would be received with the full authority of the king. It's not something that a king would leave lying around or give to another person. And yet God says, even so, I'm done. Your throne is toppled, Jehoiakim. After that word and after the ensuing conquest and the exile, surely the question must be ringing in their hearts. And surely even in Zerubbabel's heart, is, is that the end of the promise? The promise made to David and David's line. And here we see God's final word to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, I have chosen you. I will make you as a signet. You are chosen and precious. Zerubbabel is not cast off. Not even the great wickedness of his forefathers annuls the promise. And Zerubbabel is going to fulfill his God-given destiny. God will protect him and do something glorious through him. You should see this as well. It's amazing in the language. In verse 23, finally, he isn't called Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, but he's called Zerubbabel, my servant, the one I have chosen. Haggai is doing what other prophets have done. This is the language of Psalm 78. This is the language of Isaiah 40 to 55, speaking of the future Davidic king. He's making the promise again in Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel never reigns, does he? Never ascends the throne. But Zerubbabel is a guarantee. He is God, like God's signature. God is saying again to the people, my promise still stands. My Messiah is coming. The King is coming. Where do we see Zerubbabel's name again? We see it in the Gospel of Matthew, in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew traces the line from Zerubbabel through a series of unknowns to Joseph and the Davidic descent is traced through him to Jesus Christ and Jesus Therefore, it's the fulfillment of Haggai's promise. Zerubbabel is the signet ring king. After the exile, God making his promise again to a people who are wondering and confused. Guarantee what I have said I will do, I will do. So God says to his chosen people, he says to his remnant, and he says to his children today, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you. This is the same commitment of love that we see on every page of Scripture. The love described in my children's Jesus Storybook Bible is the, the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. It's the love we see right after we sinned and the promise He made. They had listened to the serpent and yet He makes the promise, yes, the serpent will bruise your heel, but you shall crush his head the first gospel message. It's the, the, the love we see in his election to man after man, starting with Abraham, 
down his line. It's his love in rescuing Israel and redeeming them, taking them to himself and then dwelling in the midst of a sinful people. It's the incessant calling of the prophets, repent, return as a bride to her husband. It's the love we see in him sending his son to redeem and to restore and to reconcile a fallen, worthless race. It's the love we see, the stubbornness we see in the words of Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's in his words, they shall never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's the love in his words, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes I will never cast out. It's in his promise through Paul. Those I foreknew are also predestined, and those I predestined are called, and those I called are justified, and those I justified are glorified. It's the chain unbreakable. Zerubbabel's story is about God's story, a God stronger than our, our weakness, stronger than our sin, a grace that is greater than our shame. And the hope for this hopeless group, this group that is always seemingly on the brink of discouragement, the hope for you and for me in our battle against sin, fighting currents that are stronger than us, are these words, I have chosen you. I have chosen you. In his hymn, A Debtor to Mercy Alone, Augustus Toplady said these words, he wrote, my name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Inscribed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. How incredible are those last two lines. Those who've gone before us who have died have seen Jesus face to face, are more happy than we are certainly, but they are not more secure than the child of God here on earth. The feeblest Christian, the one racked with doubt, the one wrestling with temptation, the one severely tested, the one whose assurance hangs on a thread, the one who feels useless and ineffective in kingdom service, none is less secure than the saints in heaven. And so, Rather than believing the lie that our efforts are like Sisyphus's futile attempts at rolling a boulder up a hill we can never reach, we know that every labor in Christ's church, every time we obey Jesus, is absolutely meaningful. Jesus is our great king. He is the signet ring on God's right hand. He is the one chosen and precious the New Testament calls him the, the chosen and precious cornerstone of the church. Remember that this word to Zerubbabel came on the day, the same day it says that the, the foundation stone was laid. When their hearts have turned to the Lord and they've begun to rebuild again. And so the word to the church today is this, we are building upon a precious and chosen cornerstone. We are each like little living stones small cog, each with little rolls and a glorious future. And so what we build in devotion today, we know will not be shaken and we will not be forsaken. So church today, we, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Let's pray.
God, again, we thank you for your word. We know that you are a holy God and that we are not. We are a sinful people. We do not deserve grace and yet you have revealed yourself to us through the greatest grace imaginable. The Son of God shedding his blood on the cross for our sins. Jesus, you are the precious cornerstone of the church. You are precious to us. We love you and we would build our lives upon you. We would have this church built up upon you. And so we ask that you would help us with that. Meet us in our weakness and our fragility. Give us the strength we need to obey and to fight temptation. Help us to follow you. Draw our hearts closer to you. And Jesus, you've made the promise that you will build your church. And so we ask that you would build your church here. We ask that you would build your kingdom here. We ask that you would use us for your glory and for your honor. That more and more may worship you in spirit and in truth. And Jesus, we, we love you.